Today's podcast is brought to you by my number one choice in tires, Pirelli. And since I used to be a race car driver, I know a thing or two about tires. The iconic tire brand is known for its long tradition of innovation, advanced technologies, and high-quality products. Pirelli recently added the new Scorpion All-Season Plus 3 to its American range. Developed to go the distance, it comes with a 70,000-mile treadwear warranty. Choose more mileage, more comfort, more control with the new Scorpion All-Season Plus 3. Ask your local dealer for a tune-up. Trust me, I'm a driver. Back to childhood. What is happening that makes us like we are? Well, that initial longing that I was talking about that I believe we're all born with. And I think it's this blueprint to search for love. And I think that longing is for a perfect love. But then we are searching for that perfect love through imperfect people. And we're all imperfect. And that's why we named the podcast Holy and Human, because we are very realistic about the human part of that equation. Where we really start the work with holy love is first recognizing where we've been disappointed in love and where love has wounded us, because I think we need to face those things first. It can be really a common experience to start becoming disenchanted with love and have wounds come up, have negative relationship experiences, or have parents that don't emotionally reflect us and believe that love itself is a compromise. Hello, welcome to the Pretty Intense Podcast. Thank you very much for tuning in. Today on the show, we have Adam Foley and Elisa Romeo. They are a married couple who does family counseling. They're also authors. Uh, Elisa is a licensed family therapist, a best-selling author. Adam is a healer and a spiritual coach. And I've known them for a really long time. Um, I have interviewed them before. I read their book, Meet Your Soul, and then it happened after. So it was a beautiful experience and it's been really instrumental in my life. So they have a new book out and it's called Holy Love. It's been a labor of love. I've talked to them so many times over the years of them developing it. And this is a book that's about really like merging and getting to know yourself and your soul holy as in H-O-L-Y, but holy as in whole, W-H-O-L-E, right? Like to be whole, that part of you needs to be acknowledged. So a lot of the conversation had to do with when we sort of uh, fraction off, when these parts of us are not loved and or cultivated in love. And, um, and so we talk about attachment styles and where they come from and sort of how they material, materialize in your life. And I just think that's so important. Um, it's not about becoming fully healed to be able to be in relationship, but it's about being willing to heal. And then, and that the beauty of relationships is that while a lot of the, the wounds are created in one, also the final healing is within one as well. And so um, that can be with yourself, but it can definitely be with others. Um, others are even better. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. I, it's super educational as well as inspiring. So enjoy the show. And of course, please hit the subscribe button if you like what you hear and you want to hear more of the Pretty Intense podcast. For those who don't know, you know, I've come to your house. I've read your books. I've interviewed you. Um, before this um, to hear your love story. And I thought that one of the things that I could do that right off the bat, that would be a good like lead into, cause I want to talk a lot about the book. Cause honestly, like I just 
printed off the chapter names. And I'm like, these is a, this is a good guide to conversation because there's so many heavy hitters within just the, the chapter titles themselves. So I'm going to read the first paragraph of the introduction because I feel like this is going to sort of lead into um, open the door for people to understand the areas that will be touched on in the book and, and, right. and unpacked. So here I go. It's always That's funny good. to read out. It's always funny to read <laughs> yeah. out loud. Yeah, That's I don't what know. we've been finding recording the audiobook. We're like, you get in your head a little bit. You're like, wait, what is this word? Do I even know what this word is? <laughs> it's okay, good. I'm not the only one. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. The book is called Holy Human. I'm sorry. Holy the book love. is called Holy Love. <laughs> That's Hello. the podcast. That's Holy the and podcast. Human. <laughs> which we had you on, by the way. And people still are just like, we love that podcast with Danica because you were so articulate and um, moving about how you spoke with your connection to your soul, but we can mm. talk about that later or whatever. Mm. <laughs> this one's about you. So, um, all right, I'll try and be articulate as I read this first paragraph. You may not realize it, but your whole life has been a crash course. All of your most important memories have been part of a living syllabus. From the first moment you gazed into your mother's eyes, you've been front row in class. That horrible fight with your childhood friend, the crush at summer camp, your first kiss, the first time going further, were all part of a curriculum. Your first serious relationship, the horrible breakup, the feeling of being utterly alone, and then ecstatic makeup sex were all assignments. Good assignment. Uh, that was my words. The unexpected shock of betrayal and the conscious decision to forgive were tests. From sitting bedside during the loss of a loved one to witnessing the birth of new life, you've been learning. Delight, joy, trauma, contentment, conflict have all been have all been intensive subjects during your immersion in Love 101. When I visited Egypt, I was introduced to an expert aromacologist who explained the healing powers of various scents. I returned home with 18 bottles of powerful essences that unlocked specific feelings and had all sorts of healing properties. I became inspired to find a functional way to deliver them in a new consumer lifestyle product. Candles became my medium. Voyant means seer, a reference to the inner eye chakra, one of the key energy points in the body essential to wellness and healing. Voyant is a doorway to openness and imagination, a catalyst in our daily journey. Whether you're connecting with others or enjoying alone time, Voyant strives to beautify the home and the soul to create a haven of peace and joy. The candle is delivered with a beautiful monogram 12-ounce stemless wine glass, which can be used after the wax is gone. My limited edition candle collection is available exclusively at voyantbydanica.com. I just think it's a great preface to understand kind of the chunk of the book being like about you, your inner child, your experiences, and how this allows you to be able to love yourself and receive love from others and learn how to love. So first off, maybe even just starting like with the title, like where did, I mean, you've got Holy, Holy, Holy Human as your podcast, um, but this is called Holy Love. So let's just explain the title. Yeah. 
you know, it was an emotional experience here. And you read yeah, that I was back <laughs> having that same experience, like, cause you know, we've been in this little cave writing and stuff. <laughs> and now it's like coming out in the world and it's like, Danica's reading your words that yeah. I, the way the book started was cause I was washing the dishes one day and Adam walked in and he's like, I'm just hearing this kind of essay coming through. And he read that paragraph to me and I would just like, what's happening this feels really powerful what's coming through you and i started tearing up and crying and i looked at him and i was just like well i guess we're writing a book <laughs> <laughs> and i was not super excited about that idea on an ego level because just i know writing a book's a lot of time and a certain type of work it's and exhausting <laughs> as opposed to what we thought we were doing, which was just going to go straight into online courses with our mystery school. So it was kind of like, no, this is coming first. This feels really important. And now I'm so grateful we did, we did yeah. because as we were writing it, it just makes so much sense that this is obviously what we would be doing next. It's like what we've learned from each other and from our sessions together. This is the accumulation of like everything we've been through filtered down into kind of these little gold nuggets. And we wrote it because we love love. Like we just love souls. We just want people to connect on that level. We do couples work and, and even with our kids or with our friends, it's like, we want those deep, meaningful conversations. You know, <laughs> we, we don't want to just kind of like, how are you doing on the surface? I think we long to be with people and meet on that soul level. So this book was our attempt at creating the map for that of like, really, how do we get stuck or how do we stop ourselves from that meeting place on an ego level or just be in trauma or attachment issues or reactivity and then how do we really just yeah. meet and i think from that first paragraph and the title of our book what we really wanted to speak to is that universal piece like we didn't want this to be the book for some you know special people that are into doing relationship work we really wanted this to speak to that common longing that i think we all have and it's mm -hmm. this and i wanted people to recognize that in themselves as they were reading the book yeah uh, like i wanted to ask the readers can you recognize that part in yourself that since the day you were born has been longing to be met in unconditional love. And that doesn't mean just romantic relationship, but with, with everyone in, in all interactions. And uh, that, that craving we have for authenticity and, and then examine really what is that? Really, why, why do we care? Why do we care if it's a superficial interaction or an authentic uh, interaction? Sure. And, and what it comes down for, for Elisa and I and what we've seen with clients is, because there's something inherent within us that wants a soul to soul connection and, and that that's where we actually grow and transform and where we actually meet each other and have, can have spiritual experiences within our lifetime. And that's why we chose that word. Holy. We actually had a couple different titles. We tried like the mystics guide to relationships or the, the soul's guide to relationship. And then we're like, you know, we really want to use holy on purpose because it's usually just associated with these ideas of religion or spirituality, but it, we're kind of like, what is love if not holy? Mm -hmm. And I think the reason people are disappointed in relationships is because that's the factor that's missing. It's more, did I get what I thought I wanted? Is it on my checklist of what I wrote as what I wanted? Or mm -hmm. am I opening, am I humbling that ego part of myself and allowing 
the divine and allowing love as an energy to be present in my relationships. And it's like any type of prayer, you have to kind of start with the intention and create the altar. And for us, the altar is even the idea that that's a possibility. And then the energy of love can come in and actually has so much grace and changes the game in the relationship if you invite that element in. But it's if you really- view your relationships as sacred, I think it's really hard to do relationship work unless you first bring in that element of viewing it as sacred, because then you can do much deeper work. In the heart of Napa Valley lays Somnium, which means to dream in Latin. The Somnium Vineyard Estate is an extension of the love and intensity that I pour into everything I do. To experience our wines, visit SomniumWine.com and use the code Somnium to receive a $10 flat shipping rate. Please drink responsibly. I feel like this is a, that, that realization is a later part of the process. Like in my mind, at least in my experience, there's childhood part, there's understanding. So I think we'll start there. And then there's also sort of the self part and trying to heal the aspects of yourself to be able to receive it, right. To just simply receiving love is not always something people know how to do. And so let's backtrack and I might just sort of touch on chapters, but it might not be in order here. But I think that we start with like, what is it that, what is it that shapes us? Um, like what happens in our childhood? What is the, what is the, what is the progression that puts us in this place where we, I feel like it's almost like life is about this process of like, you know, having bad operating systems. Like, you know, you've got like AOL dial up and then you like get older and you're like, this is just not working. And you're like, it works, but not well. And then you finally have to figure out how to upgrade the systems. And so there's kind of like an unlearning that happens and a relearning um, or even a letting go is a very much a part of it. So back to childhood, what is happening that makes us like we are? Yeah. Well, that initial longing that I was talking about that I believe we're all born with. And I think it's this blueprint to search for love and to search for, for what's real in life. And so I think we all have that inherent longing. And I think that longing is for a perfect love, but then we are searching for that perfect love through imperfect people. And so, and we're all imperfect, you know, and we all have our, our shit and our wounds and sorry, not, not, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on this. Uh, Swear all you like. Yeah. Great. And that's why Uh, we named the podcast. Holy and human because we are very realistic about the human part of that equation and yeah the wounds attachment issues and yeah so i think yeah, talk about we... that i don't think that because i don't think that's something people that always really know about it don't think that's something yeah. i mean even for me just realizing you know in the last know, six or eight years like in the last three or four years how pertinent and deep and effective impactful childhood programming and childhood experiences are, whether they're with your family, whether that's with some crush that broke up with you and like imprinted some 
traumatic memory of something that where you learn to judge yourself in some way or put yourself down. Like there's so much stuff that happens. And you think as you go through your life, like it's you, it's you, it's you. And then finally you go, it's me every time, every time, every time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, you know, I think that's some, I really would love you guys to speak to that, that, that part of us, that, that part of us that gets programmed, what happens, what's going on. Yeah. Well, I think where we really start the work with holy love is first recognizing where we've been disappointed in love and where love has wounded us because i think we need to face those things first Mm -hmm. and be really crystal clear about what that is uh because like i was saying when we're searching for this perfect love through imperfect people it can be really a common experience to start becoming disenchanted with love and uh, and have wounds come up, have negative relationship experiences, or have parents that don't emotionally reflect us and, and things like that. And so we, be, we can become uh, disenchanted and believe that love itself is a compromise. That, oh, for me to be loved in relationship, for me to receive this amazing gift of love, I need to act a certain way. I, you know, I should be a certain way. I should be with this type of person. So we start ourselves putting conditions on love. We're like, oh, well, my past relationships have gone like this. So I need to act this way in my next relationship or I won't get any love. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and like you said, consciously, consciously or unconsciously, is that happening? Yeah. I, I, I would say sometimes both. Mm-hmm. I definitely unconsciously, but I think we really start it's almost like we have no other data except for our own experience. So you look at your past, which is usually, (laughs) you know, fraught with (laughs) with issues and then make predictions based on what's happened. And that's all coming from ego. Mm -hmm. Like it's kind of like you can't solve a problem from the energy level in which it was created. (laughs) Right. So it's like we're in beta state in the ego, and then we're trying to make these predictions and assumptions from that place instead of understanding how to actually connect to love as an energy so that we raise the vibration and get out of all of those disappointments, all of those things that happened in childhood. We all have so much of that. And it's like they say the first five years of your life are the most important in your whole life in terms of determining if the world is a safe, loving place. If you're being seen, are you Mm. being mirrored in that way? And if you don't get that, you really do have to consciously do work to fix that time period in terms of your nervous system, in terms of being open to love. And I, and and it goes on more than five. I mean, you know, you've seen us as parents, we spend so we're so aware. I think we're almost sometimes too aware of that, our impact as parents on our kids lives. And so we are very intense on ourselves in terms of parents of how do we do today? Did we mirror their soul? Um, (laughs) Because we know we're setting up their orientation for all their relationships. And we've prioritized that over anything else, like over our career, over financial choices. Like that has been our top thing. Because I just feel like if you bring kids in the world and you fail at that, it's to me, it's the most important thing. Well, I think also when, when we work with people on sessions, that's what we see all the time is people that if they haven't been emotionally met, uh, when they're young, that that's where we start the work. And so we have a big section of our book that's dedicated to inner child work. And I absolutely love inner child work because, 
uh, as you know, as we work, how we work with Saul is we encourage people to intuitively connect to their eternal self, to their soul self. This is the part of them that existed before they were born and that exists after they die. And this is the part of you that knows how to navigate love. Our ego is not great at navigating love, but our soul truly knows how to navigate love. Mm-hmm. And your soul is that source of unconditional love. Mm-hmm. So every time we talk to our soul, every time we intuitively check in with our soul, we are in a way doing reparenting work because yes. we're taking our lower self, our self that believes in conditional love and connecting to our unconditional self and bringing that love energetically down into the body. And yeah. having a healing experience through that. And most of us, and we're not perfect parents by any means, but I think that's how we orient how, what our goals are in terms of our day and parenting is how much was just doing and how much was being, how much were we present on a right. being level? Because that's what really, that's what soul connection is. And I think what's amazing is how much potential we have as humans if we didn't get that golden ticket and our parenting agreement (laughs) that we can still heal and grow so much through our connection with our soul and love. And so it's kind of like if if you're listening and you didn't have that amazing parenting and you're hearing how impactful that is, that might be true. And that might be why some of your relationships have been harder, but it's not like a lost cause by any means. It's just kind of like now you get to do that reparenting work. And it's actually, it sounds annoying, like oh, another thing I have to do, but it's actually so, it feels so good. Yeah. Anytime you bring compassion. And it doesn't to have to so- take forever. You don't need to spend yeah. years on that. You know, sometimes you do. I think uh, usually we don't heal in an instance, you know, we mm-hmm. kind of come back to an issue and we keep uh, working on it. But uh, soul is as close as your next breath getting that information from soul and getting that information from what love would say in the situation. So often we see when people really dial into their soul that they get the intuitive information, how to move forward very quickly. And I see it like, um, when you're playing pool, no matter how bad it gets of if the other person's winning, the game's not over till that next shot. You always have an opportunity to change the game around, no matter how late in the game it is. And I think, I mean, I used to work in rehabs and jails. So I worked with people who had tons of trauma and really not great situations and coming in the world. And I saw miracles happen all the time of that pool game. Just I'm making a change. Like I'm turning it around this late in the game after murders or, you know, crazy things have gone down and being like, you know what, I'm going to give this love thing a shot. And somebody's got to be able to break the cycle. Right. I mean, otherwise the cycle never ends for all of humanity. And that just isn't the case. Um, we've got, you know, every so often someone comes along who looks at these things, looks at these patterns and, and heals them for the ancestrally through, through generations. Um, you studied, um, Carl Jung, um, psychology, Jung, Jung, how do you say it? Jung, yeah, it's a weird word. Jungian, Jungian psychology. psychology. Um, and do they teach attachment styles in? Oh yeah. I mean, it's a huge part. And I think that's so Major. Can you touch yeah. on that? Because I think this is something where for me as a learner, um, understanding attachment styles and being able to go, oh, that's me. It kind of like all of a sudden puts you into this other, this bucket. And then all of a sudden within that bucket, there's all kinds of other little things. And you can kind of like distill things down to 
for me, this is how it was where I was like, oh, for me, I am anxious attachment, right? I'm afraid of being abandoned. I'm never good enough. And so when I knew that, then I was because of having someone explain what an anxious attachment is and, and all of the attachment styles I could identify. And it really helps with the process. So maybe if it's, can you, uh, you know, highlight the, the styles and, and explain yeah, yeah. what the, what the tendencies are? Yeah, I mean, this is a topic I'm really passionate about. <laughs> yeah, we're very I into this topic. That towards Lisa, but uh, <laughs> I was like, "Let me in, coach. Yeah. <laughs> I love this question." Yeah. <laughs> me too. So, so general, generally, there's three different attachment styles. Uh, there's more uh, specific categories within those, but the broadest categories are avoidant attachment, anxious attachment, and secure attachment. And uh, avoidant attachment is when we feel emotionally threatened in a relationship or we feel insecure that our impulse is to distance our impulse is to keep somebody at an arm's length and this can show up in a lot of different ways it can show up in literally this feeling of uh you know we got in a fight oh now i'm gonna go out with my friends you know i'm just gonna like vacate this argument and i'm just gonna leave uh but it can also show up uh in techniques like sometimes grand romantic gestures mm. actually are a way of not being authentically intimate by consuming time with uh grand acts of romance opposed to having a real emotional authentic vulnerability instead of vulnerability. just being like here i am let's meet on this level it's like performing sure yeah. am i enough right here just like this something simple you know uh, yeah that's the and it comes from that same place of am i lovable mm-hmm. well I don't know if I am, so I'm going to do these big things to kind of look over here. Yeah. And then anxious attachment style is this, um, when there's conflict of this, I want to bring you closer. Um, and I'm going to try to pull you as close as I can. Uh, and, but with it, with anxiety on it, because there's fear of, if I don't have you at a certain uh, level of intimacy, perhaps this is not going to last. And so it is uh, fear-based and. And more clinging. And that's what I, that was what I had to work through. Adam was more avoidant. Yeah. Um, And what I like to say about the attachment styles too, is that uh, I think, I think it's like 15% of the population has secure attachment. So this is not like an uncommon thing. It's oh, yeah, totally. in our society. Uh, I think most people are screwed up. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. We That's should comfort we everyone. Yeah. yeah, we're all messy yeah. in the boat. <laughs> yeah, so it's really, really common. So don't feel bad if you identify with one of these categories. Uh, sure. You know, I had my own avoiding attachment stuff to work through. Elisa had her anxious attachment stuff to work through. And like we said, we're not supposed to be perfect when we come to relationship. Sure. In fact, sometimes it's, I've seen it can be a more miraculous healing journey when you come to relationship with all your baggage, because then if you really heal that with a person, then you build such a deep level of trust with that person. Yeah, we have been through it, like especially in the beginning of our relationship. And normally um, those two styles attract each other where you'll have somebody who's avoidant and someone who's anxious. And then you just have the anxious person you know, wrestling them down, pulling them in, questioning them, getting more neurotic, getting analytical, and then the avoidant person's going away and then withdrawing and coming back. And it becomes this kind of can't live with you, can't live without you, sometimes passionate, kind of like projective, can be explosive relationship. And um, 
they activate each other, right? They like feed into each other, those two styles. And if it's unconscious, it's a really bad situation. If it's conscious, it's an opportunity. It's like, oh, look, this is actually kind of awesome because it's so at the surface, all those feelings that there's a lot of potential for healing, but it takes a certain type of the reason our first, we go on in the book about a healthy ego is because we don't speak of ego more yogically of annihilate the ego, get rid of the ego. We're coming more psychologically to that idea of you need a healthy ego. An ego can be good or bad, depending if it's conscious or unconscious, but a healthy ego is capable of staying when it's uncomfortable. So you need someone, and that's the human part of holy and human of like assessing in your relationship, is this person capable of handling that emotional dissonance when those old wounds surface and then sitting through it, because if they can sit through, it takes courage and it takes persistence and it takes being conscious of what's happening. If you're not conscious, then it's just like, this relationship sucks. I'm not just, you're not what I want. I'm not getting what I need from you because they're uncomfortable. But if it's conscious around, actually, I really want you. Mm. And because of that desire, I'm annoyed because I'm feeling all my old family stuff and my body. And I, so I feel terrified and I, if they can, it's like one, can you identify those feelings, which is not always, that sounds simple. People think like identifying feelings, like, yeah, of course, you know how you feel. But honestly, most people have no idea how they feel. When I used to work in rehabs, that was so shocking to me. We had a feeling chart similar to the one, like we put in this book we'd pass it around and it'd be like, pick three feelings that you're feeling right now off this chart. And, and you'd think that'd be so basic. And me who had been through Pacifica Graduate Institute Jungian training, like you'd think I would be able to do that pretty well. And I remember getting handed the feeling chart and being like, whoa, like how, because the idea of how we think we're feeling is usually different than what's actually happening in our mm-hmm. body in the moment. So it's coming into the present moment, which takes kind of trauma withdrawing, deprogramming to do that. And then identifying what am I? And usually it can be mixed. You can be like excited and nervous or, you know, inspired and terrified. So it's starting to identify those places and then bringing love and healing to the places that need attention within that. So in a relationship, there's so much going on. I see like, we're like these universes and we collide together. And then you have like a third universe that's created by these two universes. Uh And then it's like, what's that universe about in terms of the soul lessons and contracts and what is going on? And also this might be out there for some people, but we believe it's like a soul journey. So it's also not just this lifetime. Sure. I'm with them. It's broadening, right? To like, and whether you believe that or not, it's just there's a lot going on. <laughs> and so, so it's kind of like getting yeah. aware of like, well, what one thing I was going to say was uh, one of the reasons we chose the title, Holy Love was because we wanted to move away from this idea that love is simply an, just an emotion and that love is actually a process. So one way I think people mm. see relationships is like, love is something that you are, are going to go get in a relationship. And so you Hmm. crave a relationship because you want that feeling. And then when you have your first conflict are disappointed about something with your partner, then you're like, well, I didn't get that feeling. So I'm out. I guess that's not love. Uh, (laughs) Or I'm I'm doing something wrong or I'm unlovable. But if we see love as a process that's happening to us, 
because we see love as a moment to moment thing. The way that love is showing up right now in this moment for us, for this conversation is different than it's going to show up 30 minutes later. So you have to stay tuned to what (laughs) love is. You can't predict, you can't put any rules on how love should act. You have to be open to it, receiving the intuitive information uh, from love. So in that way, we really see love as a spiritual journey. Yeah, that makes me think of a statement that I've heard recently that I thought, and I think it was Jordan Peterson who said it, that um, relationships, you could even maybe even put the word love instead of it, right, Um, is a decision, not a discovery. And that there's, I think there's some truth there in that, you know, you know, you, you, you have this situation with a person and, and the relationship is a decision. You're like, okay, yeah, like I'm all in. It's not just sort of like, let's just see how you act tomorrow. It's like, no. And so the hard part is, is like, how do we find ourselves in sync with the right person so that we don't make a bad decision? I think we would also say, I mean, I like that, what you're saying, and I totally agree with that. And I would say for us, and it's kind of semantics, but for us, I think love is both of those things. It's a, deci- you make the decision mm-hmm. so that then you're discovering like a whole other realm yeah. of love. That's a potential once you're consistent and made that real yeah. committed decision, because I'm discovering stuff every moment with Adam. Right. Mm-hmm. But it's not, it's not like, discovering if I want to be here. Right. It's more, it's more, um, through our trust and through those decisions we made when it was hard, when we wanted to leave. And we had arguments in the beginning when we were working on our attachment stuff that like Adam would, I remember once he said to me, like, I want it because he used to fish and go up to Alaska and, you know, do this like manly thing off by himself. And I remember when he was like, I think, I want to go to Alaska and just like, get out of here. But like, I can't even leave you because I know if I'm like alone in a fishing boat in Alaska, like you're still going to be there with me. Like it was like, he was realizing that there was no getting away from the love. I would say that's actually the moment I, I healed my avoidant attachment or a piece of it was we had gotten in an argument and I had that emotional impulse to run. Right. Mm -hmm. I was like, I want out. Like, and it wasn't, because of anything specific, it was because my trauma was up, you know, my, my inner child wounds from when I was little. And so that was activated. Mm-hmm. But then this feeling of Elisa had touched something true in me. And I knew that if I ran, if I had left her, that I would almost be haunted by her experience because it would be like, oh, there was this thing that was true that I missed out on. And so I realized in that moment that there was no escape in a way. It was the wisdom of no escape of one. And I think, you know, we all talk about how we want love. We're all like, we want love. We want the perfect relationship. But what most people don't realize is that love reveals all of our wounds. Love brings up all the places we feel like we're not loved and where we have self-beliefs that we're not loved. (laughs) So it's really hard. But to get to your question about how do you know it's that person, right? How do you know that this is somebody that's worth investing in and worth uh, building that trust to go through all the wounds with? We have a huge section of our book dedicated to trying to recognize who is a soul match for you. Mm. And so that is taking a lot, you know, all our dating websites focus on egoic traits for making matches for people. Ah, They're like, Oh, what are your hobbies? What's your personality type? What, you know, 
what's your religion? There's what do you think these... you want? So there's yeah. it's based off of all of uh, egoic traits and characteristics and mm. and not to dismiss those because those are important too but what we lack i think as a culture is being able to inherently sense somebody's essence right. of who they are on an energetic level so not who they are based on their actions or their words uh, but who they are as a soul mm. so we really see one uh, metaphor we use in the book is it's like complementary colors like you can be with somebody and your color feels less vibrant and it kind of loses its hue. But if you're with a soul that matches, you usually have a feeling of more life force of more mm -hmm. energy. Yeah. And so we, we bring it to a somatic level of really trying to deprogram your beliefs of what you think a relationship should be and see if you can get into a uh, emotionally aware place of becoming aware of that biofeedback from another person somatic just means no how deeper. it feels in your body how yeah. does that feel yeah. and um we have a whole chapter on tough love because it's not sometimes loving the loving information is to leave because sometimes and and i think that's really hard sometimes for people because the idea of being spiritual or compassionate is kind of like sometimes people interpret that as i'll enable anything i'll stay even if the all person positive yeah. And I'll just like not necessarily see what's happening, but if something's really toxic or really unhealthy, then you have to kind of listen to love about not enabling or, or potentially leaving. But I think we're so realistic about where the human is capable, because even if you have some wonderful soul connection, if in that lifetime, that person is because of the nature of their trauma. And if they're also just not going to care about healing, basically, right? Like if they have the trauma and they don't want to do the work you can only get so far yeah it is a we have this personal accountability of like are we going to choose because it's hard sometimes to stay and open to love when your stuff's triggered so it's kind of like also being realistic with like is this person capable of hanging when the stuff gets tough or are they going to project out and be like well maybe it's just you yeah because you can only go so far then in that case yeah you can only go as far as you're healing essentially and you know if you can't make peace with yourself it's hard to make peace with the other person so that actually kind of brings me back i wasn't sure if we were gonna get back to this question but i think this is a, an opportunity is your the three attachment styles really the two in particular that are the most prevalent um secure you're all good you guys aren't even listening um <laughs> <laughs> like, why would you i read a book about relationships you know you're, you're yeah. good you, you know 2.5 kids and you know it yeah. makes sense well yeah. one shout out to the secure attachment people <laughs> yeah out shout out is, is yeah is uh we love you uh, we respect thanks you. for being uh, there no a secure attachment actually you know in movies we're really shown often kind of that combustive part of relationships and yeah. we see that as romantic sometimes often we see that anxious passion. and avoidant yeah. chaser runner dynamic yeah. as oh, like yeah. a true dynamic uh and often secure attachment people can actually struggle to get relationships or dates because people see can it's boring appear like as boring because there's not that emotional <laughs> yeah tough uh, so then yeah. this brings me to the question which is mm -hmm. can you 
explain to people what it is that creates that attachment style of anxious or avoidant? What is the pattern of the parent um, that uh, that establishes that sort of relationship? There's so mm. many things like because it can be you have an, a parent that's an addict. And so maybe they're there, but not there. Or maybe there's a history of like abuse in the home. So any type of abuse, um, definitely addiction. And then there's also things like that covert narcissism, right? Where it's like, these are the people where they're on the PTA, they're showing up at all the games, they are bringing cookies to whatever. Um, but there might be this coldness, this manipulation and control mm -hmm. in the relationship. So then the kid's not really receiving true soul reflection or love. Mm -hmm. It's more, if you do X, Y, Z, you get our love. So it's conditional love. And so then they learn to be little good soldiers of getting mommy and daddy's approval, which might even look very socially acceptable and enviable to many sure. people. But sure. what's really going on then is you're creating a self-esteem issue in the kids where they're like, I'm not lovable. And, um, and then unless I perform or unless I whatever. And so then they sacrifice getting to know who they truly are authentically and as a soul, because they're so busy working so hard to perform. And they've learned to identify as that idea of yeah. who they are from programming. So that's called persona. We talk about that in the book. So, so persona is like a word for mask. So you start to think you are the mask sure. and, and it makes these kind of chameleon, like people who don't have this solid, consistent kind of attachment style and knowing. And, um, you know, I think my parents are pretty great in many ways. And I, then I went to grad school and learned about <laughs> like all these issues. And then you see, you start to see, um, even though people are doing their best and that's usually what it is. Most parents are just trying yeah. their best with what they yeah. were raised with. Right. Exactly. Um, and then you start to see like, oh my gosh, I didn't get all these other things and I have some work to do. Um, but also kind of understanding not being too perfectionistic on that. Like, yeah, we all have work to do, but also like be compassionate to where you are do your best, like, um, because it's all, it's, it's all in process, right? Like none of it's like this perfect situation, but they generally say that avoidant attachment people that that wound is initiated when you get pretty much no emotional reflection right. or that nurturing contact. So if you're, uh, I think the best example is like, if you're a kid and you get hurt, if you skin your knee, was your parent, that type of parent of like, just get up, get over it. You know, you're, you're okay. So that's, there's, I think there's a lot of complexity in where avoidant attachment comes from, but that's the general sort of how they group that into a category. Mm -hmm. And then anxious attachment is often when we get mixed messages, like a, a bit of both where sometimes, uh, we get that from our parents and sometimes we don't. And so we never know what to expect. And so we grow up where we feel an uncertainty where we're like, I don't know if this is secure or Coming not. Or going. I'm testing the water, uh, but you know, I'm not sure. So there's this hesitancy and this kind of, and then there can be more of an emphasis on like, oh, maybe if I perform in a certain way, I'll get that. Maybe if, you know, so you never know. So it creates anxiety. So yeah. that's why it's anxious attachment. The other two things, I mean, there's so many things that cause these issues, but <sighs> I said addiction, you know, trauma from like violence and things like that, but also mental health issues. If your parent 
is really swinging in bipolar states that can be tough on kids or if um so mental health issues also personality types like sometimes um i'm a kid who is an enfj on the myers-briggs which means i'm wired to be all about big abstract concepts of philosophy and then always on a feeling state. I make my decisions based on how I'm feeling. And I had two parents that were thinkers and made decisions through thinking. And then also a little more, they were S's. So a little more um, just here and now in the world of like what makes sense instead of just like abstract concepts of value. And so that created a particular type of trauma in me in the sense of like, interpreting who I am naturally as not being right in a particular way, like not being um, fit for society. <laughs> like, it's like the story in a certain of kind the of way. ugly duck. Yeah. Where you're like, something's wrong with me. I'm not like functioning in the same way. And I nothing think, was yeah. wrong with me the whole mm -hmm. time. Nothing was wrong with them the whole time, but we didn't have a, uh, there was a part of me that started to get anxious growing up because I, it was never communicated to me that my nature was purposeful or how or why they couldn't role model that to me because that wasn't their experience or orientation so yeah. i think what it really all boils down to is <laughs> if you are seen on a soul level and i and so that's really what holy love is all about is seeing each other on a soul level and so that's that type of emotional reflection I think we're talking about. And it's like, I'm so grateful for my parents in so many other ways. And the reason I'm saying this is because I just want people to not think it's so black and white. It's like, yeah. it's, it's, it's like, you don't have to like pull away from everything that's been semi good either. You just need to kind of recognize the places where you weren't seen or being yeah. together in that energy and then start to really rewire that programming. Uh, yeah, I agree. And I think that's important to say because they're, you know, and talking about this, even with my parents, you know, like at first when you start to say trauma and when you stay abandoned and all these <laughs> like, words, what? like they're, you know, my dad like worked his ass off so that he exactly. could provide, but he was gone all week and only home on the weekends. And so like my little, you know, couple year old self feels, doesn't know that doesn't have exactly. the ability to, to, to digest the dynamic. And so I just feel like there's an inconsistency with, with, with it it's all love when it's there, but then when it's not there, I'm like, what's happened? Did I do something wrong? So then of course, when I started racing and, you know, um, you know, that was like, I do anything to keep him around because my, my fear was that he'd leave again. And so I would put up with everything, which sort of made me feel like I wasn't good enough because there was always more to do. And so I love that you shared that because that is usually what it is for people. It's like, the person, the parents showing up, like yeah. I'm doing my best. I don't understand. Yeah. And, but it's not always received that way. And that's just because of you were whatever, six, seven, eight. So we're in different developmental states. So mm. we're interpreting, we don't know. We're not like adults yet. Um, I had an ex-boyfriend who was a professional golfer and he was really great when he was 18. He was like best in the nation beat Tiger Woods. One reason he was so good was because his mom died when he was young and no one talked about it in the family. And so he learned to control his rage and all his emotions through golfing. And so every day he was out there practicing all day long. I can get this ball from point A to point B without feeling a thing. I'm very controlled in my emotional state. And then later when he was like, late 20s, went to therapy, starts talking about <laughs> all the wounds from his mother, his golf game went way down. But it was a soul 
you know, like success because now we're starting to integrate but on the surface it looks like wow digging into this stuff really is sucking for my life (laughs) and not doing me any favors you know well your new life's always going to cost your old one you know and the idea is that it's going to be a better one because the reason why you've stepped into something that you feel like you need to address. So for people listening, they're like, "Mm, I feel like, you know, like this, maybe I have this pattern or this isn't working from, usually it's like, this isn't working for me, right? Like race relationships don't work or jobs just don't work for me or whatever, you know, friendships break down or there's some kind of thing that's happening that is another word for it as a pattern. And they're like, I need to do something about it. And the thing is, is that, you know, once you face that, it's because the discomfort has become so great. I was actually just saying on the phone this morning, I was talking to my sister and, um, you know, we were talking about a, a, a friend's dynamic and it's like either, you know, they will either, either the, actually it was hers. Sorry. It was hers. And I was talking about her job. And I said, look, I said, you're doing your best. I said, it'll either become obvious the path forward and whatever you're doing moving forward, which is usually not the case, but it could happen like that. Or the discomfort within becomes so great that you can't stay any longer. And so I said, that's usually the way it goes. That's usually how you make a transition or change is that the discomfort becomes so great. So whether it's the people or the the routine that you have to be in or the places you have to go or the people you have to deal with, the things become so uncomfortable, you just have to get out. And so, yes, it's going to cost your your life, your, 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 a lot of, you know, there might be friends, jobs, things like that, relationships that fall away, where you live, who knows, something or many things can fall away, but it's all in the pursuit of getting closer to who you really are and dropping this, what was the other word for mask, the persona? Persona, yes. Mm-hmm. To, to, to sort of dissolve the persona that you created when you were young to make sure that you were safe and fed and had somewhere to sleep because like your parents were everything. And so I also like to tell my sister, like you're, I mean, I feel like I'm kind of a dick for saying these things because I don't have kids, but that every parent will give their kids something. And it's really like not about not giving them some kind of thing to deal with, or maybe you're part yeah, of yeah. the 15% that's secure. Oh, yeah. yeah. They're out there, <laughs> but um, the unicorns. Um, but it's really, and so this is where it's going to come to my question. It's really about how you teach your kids how to deal with things. And so how do you as parents reparent essentially? And how do you, how are you writing the book on parenting for yourselves so that you can you can you can grow the next generation to have the tools yeah and kids are sponges so they it doesn't matter what you tell them to do like do this thing this is how it works emotionally they're going to do what you did you know so so <laughs> at the end of the day it's modeling you know and and it whole and that's what we love about kids is in terms of spiritual kind of like witnesses or you know assignments they hold you accountable they're like we got your number whatever you're doing we're going to reflect that back like immediately so i mean we just first we use a lot of language as things are happening like if i'm stressed and i know i'm acting kind of ridiculous i'll be like mama's stressed right now i'm acting a little weird this might feel weird to you i know this isn't my best state but i'm gonna do this for a little bit and hopefully my mood will change in 35 minutes you just might want to stay away from me for a little bit like so what i'm communicating is like your intuition's correct Mm. this isn't about you Mm-hmm. And I'm accountable. I'm identifying my feelings. And I'm going to, in a process of going to try to work through that the best I can. 
I think a lot of parents put a pressure on themselves too to not ever have arguments or to show their real life stressors to their kids. They try to keep Protect that sort of compartmentalized. And that I don't think that's helpful for children. I think that children need to know that humans are messy, that we're not perfect, mm -hmm. that sometimes we're stressed and sometimes we accidentally shout across <laughs> the room when we're in a bad state or, uh, or get in a conflict with our partners. And what they need to know is that that is normal and that you can work through it. And then here's some tools on how to And that it's that. okay to communicate about. We have two kids that feel very comfortable <laughs> telling us because of how we've modeled and told them mm -hmm. like, our younger one is like, oh my gosh, she's so clear about all this stuff that he'll just tell us like, when you and Papa were arguing about that thing, I felt weird in my stomach and I didn't like it and I didn't know what was going to happen. I'll be like, I'm sorry you felt that way. Here's what was going on for us. I'll try to use developmentally appropriate language because you don't want to parentify your kids and make them feel like it's their job to fix the adult's problems. But you also okay. don't want to deny they're happening and you want to just because that's what I, you know, some people think the healthiest thing is not arguing, but um, if you know the work of John Gottman, he can pre predict divorce up to like 98% or whatever. <laughs> and it's really, it's not about not arguing. It's about how you argue. And a lot of it's about communication. So it's kind of like identifying things and talking about it and, um, and then just not arguing in toxic ways, like passive aggressive or stonewalling mm -hmm. or the silent treatment, you know? And um, being able to recognize like when you're in the grip of stress, that's not a time to communicate <laughs> to your children. That's a time you yeah. go off by yourself. You need a bathroom break yeah. and to go breathe or whatever yeah. you need to do. Also, I think the greatest compliment we can give our kids is spending time with them. Mm. And so I think that often we think, oh, we get anxious as parents. I get anxious all the time. <laughs> you know, like I have my focus being like, oh, my, my kid's success in the world. Like I need to prepare them as best I can. I need to give them every single tool so that they can have a fulfilling life, but it can become, it can come from an anxious place. Mm -hmm. And so, and I think if our kids feel that, if they feel like we're, they're always a uh, improvement project and we're trying to make them better mm -hmm. and better that then they, they, they believe that themselves. They say, oh, to be successful in life, I need to put this pressure on myself. They internalize the pressure. Mm -hmm. And so I think one of the greatest things we can do with our kids is just spend relaxed Have time. Have fun together. with them. Have yeah. fun with them. We try to, we actively seek out comedy to watch with our family. We watch uh -huh. AFV. We actually, for my birthday, we're doing this stand-up comedy night with our friends. So everybody, including the kids, would have a minute or two that have to come out and do something funny. And the reason why we push that is because humor heals. And humor, if you have that where you can make fun of stuff while it's happening, it's so healthy. And psychology school and therapy school, I, we learned about the good enough parent. So it's not about being perfect. They call it the good enough. And what defines a good enough parent is this, these kind of flexible traits of like, we can talk about things, we can communicate, we're doing our best, but we're open, we're transparent, we're taking accountability. If we, if, if a kid comes to you and says, you fail me in this way, you're like, I hear you. You're not denying or minimizing or running. You're in contact and you're emotionally connecting. And yeah. that's what creates healthy attachment is kind of like, it's not always perfect, but I know I'm safe right. knowing they can handle a conversation about it yeah. without withdrawing. And then we start to do that internally so that when life is stressed, we don't like something at our job. We've had that modeling. So we're like, I didn't like what my boss did, but I have the courage to maybe communicate it 
in a in an appropriate way because I've had that modeling. So if we don't get the modeling, then we just need to kind of like learn how. And I think to in, do that in that example of a boss, I think that the real tool we're trying to give them is not giving their self worth away to somebody externally. So yeah. not believing if my boss is disappointed in me, that means I'm a disappointing person. Mm-hmm. And so that's, it's being able to hold that nuance and that complexity of, oh, my boss can be disappointed in me. And it has nothing to do with who I am. I think that's such important information. And I think such good advice as well. But what comes to mind is how, you know, when you're dealing with a kid, you can pretty much tell them whatever you want. Like if you wanted to tell them like, no, I'm fine. Everything is fine. No, there's no problem. Or like, you know, whatever the dynamic is, the parent can look like the good guy to the kid and um, make and, and keep the peace egoically with themselves that everything is fine. And it feels like basically like kids get gaslit a lot, probably. And, you know, which is just denying your reality the way that you see and feel it um, and and someone telling you it's not that way. It's some other way. And I mean, that's a I think that really brings disconnect with our our soul and our true self, because like you said, so, so important that you said this is that you learn how to trust your your intuition. You learn how to trust your body. And kids, I, I mean, I, I mean, if I didn't know all this information, I have kid and I'd probably try and look like the good guy a lot of times right. and try and, you know, I would probably try and, you know, even if I thought it helped them. Um, but the truth is, is that the more you deny their intuition and they hit it on the head, the less connected they are to it because their survival relies on them not thinking that way anymore. Yeah, that's perfectly spoken. And that's what happens. Kids will be like, oh, everything's fine. But then they have a stomach ache or then they're not sleeping well. And any therapist knows what happens is then the kid is usually in this family system. Oh, the issues with the kid, the kid's not getting good grades. The kid's having these things happen. They're having nightmares. Why are they wetting the bed at 12 years old or whatever? And then they bring you the kid to therapy. And then it's like, fix that problem, fix the stomach aches, fix whatever. But then you start to see through talking to the kid or witnessing fab family dynamics, oh, they're just showing the, the they're revealing how the system's not working. Yeah, exactly. And if, the, and if the other part of the system isn't willing to do they're the work, thinking. yeah, then then you have to kind of just protect and support the kid as best you can. I mean, I used to work in juvenile hall mm-hmm. and yeah. it's like there was so much of that happening, right? Where it's like the kid's the problem and the kid is traumatized. The kid is wounded. And then we're doing things in our system to re-traumatize the kid, like putting a 16-year-old in isolation, mm-hmm. like wild things. So yeah. um, that gaslit piece that you mentioned, I think is so important uh, in all relationships. Yeah. Uh, we were asked, I guess I'll visit that later, but that, like you said, it can create an internal distrust in our own emotions. We may be feeling all these emotions as a kid and just think they're wrong, you know, or think they're misplaced or think it's our problem, think we have an anxiety disorder or a self-confidence issue or something like that. But really what it is, is we don't feel safe in our bodies and we're, we're denying that in ourselves. So a lot of soul work is reacquainting yourselves with, with your truth what is really true for you and and then using that truth to navigate life that's really all of the work if we were going to say it in one sentence it would be find your own truth 
And then how do you make decisions from that truth? And trust, trust your gut. I mean, I just heard a story. Someone sent me an email about, they went to a spiritual retreat Mm -hmm. where you think you're going to be doing this work and they're getting gaslit by the people running it of basically they had an issue with the thing. They communicated to them. They didn't want to take accountability. And so they're like, you're just jealous. You're just, you have an issue. This is your attachment wound you need to work on. That person's vulnerable and kind of traumatized. So they're like, maybe that's right. This is the the expert telling me this. I must have some issue I need to work on. So that's why we so promote connecting to your soul and not giving your power to anyone, to really developing a true spiritual teacher or healer or therapist is going to be someone who's truly encouraging for real that Mm -hmm. relationship with your own empowerment instead of, I want to feel special as a therapist. Give me your power and I'm the expert. And let me tell you like, so, and, and the way you know that is you just trust your, you can feel it. Like, do I really feel safe with this person or do I feel like with this healer I'm needing to perform? And then sometimes it's like a, a, a trauma. What do you call it? When you have an addiction to the trauma wound where you're uh-huh. kind of like, yeah. so, so it's kind of like in some ways people sometimes seek that out, like literally will yeah. go to those people in relationship or as healers that will gaslight them because that's what they know. That's what they've been used to. Yeah. I think the question you can ask yourself in that situation is if, whether it's a spiritual teacher or a therapist or a friend or a parent is, does this person either want me, I think in the case of a spiritual teacher to be more like them and Mm. do they want me to become more of some like enlightened persona or more of myself? Mm. And I think uh, within the family system, the question can be more like, does this person want me to play a role or do they want me to be more of myself? Mm. That's important to say um, because it's like, I always find prompts being a really good um, sort of way to open the door to a a space, an energetic space uh, or perspective, because we're so desensitized to our patterning and our, the way that we, uh, orient and associate and choose to be around people, why we do. And it's like the questions are so helpful um, to be able to get into. It's like, it's like almost like it's sort of like goes around the ego. And then you have to kind of kind of get down to it, to the true self, to the to the soul, to be able to ask those questions. I love that you said that, by the way, because in this book, we worked so hard on our prompts because we know the wording makes a big difference of that entry point of like how your because just even a different word change can like should in the in, can make a big difference. And we got an email yesterday from somebody who had read Loved Meet Your Soul, my first book. And they're like, thank you for putting so many prompts. Because um, I had a feeling and intuition like that my questions to my soul just weren't tweaked because of my programming in the right way. And then having those prompts. So it's funny you say that because yeah, I think prompts are major. Major, really helpful. And for those who really want to do the work, I mean, of course, then it's the next step to like answer that question. And you'd (laughs) you'd be surprised how quickly you can get into the space. And there's um, an inertia that happens really quick where you really want to start figuring out and there are answers and that's your soul. And that's, that's been my experience anyway, and probably a lot of your experience with working with people and working with your own souls is that the information is readily available. Like you said, Adam, it's your next breath. Like you're, you know, that connection is just right there. And it's just, 
asking for cultivation and activation and to answer your questions. It's usually and, such a no duh feeling of like, yeah. when I connect with my soul, she's like, hello, I've been here. Yeah. I don't know what you've been doing, but I'm <laughs> so right here for you. Like you didn't have to work that hard. It is. And it's usually like, there's a, there's a peaceful feeling. There's a under, it's like it lands softly instead of being harsh. It's kind of, it's a soft truth. Even when, even though there's sometimes hard truths is like, it lands softer and you're just like, yeah. Cause it's with love, right? That's how, you know, yeah. you're talking to your soul. Is it coming from that energy of love? And it's just, yeah. just it is an energy. It's a certain feeling and it yeah. brings so and much. And for joy. those who haven't done it, I mean, honestly, it's just start to ask yourself questions. It can even just like be simply stated as like self-talk, just like, or free journaling or free talking, you know, maybe it's good to start off with, you know, your inner child, maybe how old is usually we can identify with our inner child, maybe as an age, right? Like maybe kind of like, or even pick an age. Um, and then you just start to say like, Hey, you know, how are you doing? Like say, say, how are you doing? Like, just yeah. start with that. Yeah. And it's amazing how it works. But um, earlier, Adam, you had mentioned um, about being, and maybe you said it, uh, Elise, I can't remember which one of you, but about healing within relationships. It's like, we are essentially wounded within relationships. So it's imaginable that there will be some sort of ultimately like a final healing within relationships, because as you said, it develop you, you enter, you really deepen that trust. And, and there's sort of like, it almost feels like it, I'm very visual. So it's like, almost feels like there's a, there's more of a sealing of the, of the, of the wound when it is integrated with someone, there's a lot of work you can do on your own for sure. Um, but within relationships, there's even more. And it also is your, is a wonderful mirroring experiment in being a human where you see yourself in the other person through triggers and all the other dynamics. Um, and also through the good things you see in them. It's like, you know, if you, if you look at it, if one of you looks at the other and is like, see something really beautiful, that's, that's within you. That's an aspect of you. You really are seeing yourself through that person. And so I want to ask like the final question is to, you know, what does holy love look like? And, um, you know, how, how will we know, how will we know when we're in that? I love that. I mean, we are relational beings, so we're always in relationship. And when you said earlier, you know, talk to that inner child part, that's very Jungian because the idea of Jung's work is like, we have all these little sub characters within us. And yeah. we think we're just like, I'm me, I'm Elisa. Am <laughs> I just this one person? But the reality is depending on what happens or what's triggered to me, I might suddenly be six-year-old Elisa, or I might be wise Elisa, you know, based on what's sure. fluctuating. So I think we're changing kind of all the time through all these little sub parts. And so holy love is anytime you're opening to the true energy of love. And that, I mean, some of the most beautiful versions of holy love I've seen are like nuns and monks who are in deep relationship with their higher self. They're in an active, engaged relationship. They're working their inner child. They're getting reflected because it's a relationship. So you're hearing from your higher self. So if you're single, you can also be in deep relationship. And that's why we call it the four spiritual relationships, because it's like that inner relationship between you and your soul. That's a real relationship that might have projections or might have intimacy issues. So you can also like, and also mm -hmm. nurtures you. When I call in Sophia, my soul, she's loving me in a way that sometimes is intense to my ego. So it's really like 
relating, right? It's like, I, Lisa has to receive, has to learn to receive to that level of love. And I think we're always like, I want love. I want love. I want love. But when the energy of love comes in, it's really, it makes you so vulnerable and it makes mm-hmm. you reorient who you think you are. So mm-hmm. it, it is such a transformative, but also intense process. Mm-hmm. And so, um, any building that relationship anywhere is really useful, but in yeah. relationship with another human. Well, what I was going to say first for listeners, when Elisa said, Sophia, if you don't know what she's talking <laughs> about, we have a lot of exercises where we give our soul a name so that we can create that dialogue between yeah. Adam yeah. and my soul. And that name becomes a symbol of unconditional love. So, you know, when you were talking earlier and you're talking about connecting to soul and you did that little like moment of where when you recognize it as truth, there's this feeling when we talk to soul of recognition and it's, it's kind of this feeling of, oh, I thought love was there. I thought love was there. I expected love to be here, but now that I'm really hearing my soul, I'm like, oh, it's right here. And and there's a, a body recognition. So most of the time when we work mm-hmm. on sessions with people, when they get their soul information, it's not some far out abstract concept they've never heard of before. Usually the information coming through, usually it's something like, yeah, it is time to leave this relationship. And you actually already knew that, you know, mm-hmm. or it's, or you are avoiding an issue here and you already knew that. So there's a part of us mm-hmm. that already knows. Or you're going to work overtime yeah. because you're just terrified of feeling your stomach feelings the feelings in your stomach and i and i think the same is with holy love so holy love our definition is is just any moment you are experiencing unconditional love Mm -hmm. so that can be with somebody we've been married with with, for 25 years or it can be the barista at the cafe for five minutes Mm -hmm. and so are we able to access a state of unconditional love with this other person. Mm -hmm. And I really stress the definition of unconditional because I think it's actually quite rare that we really allow ourselves to receive unconditional love and be in a moment of unconditional love. I think we may feel unconditionally loved by people in our lives, but can we together sit in a moment of unconditional intimacy where we're really connecting on that level. Mm-hmm. And I would say that the first layers, what first comes up is like you said, all the wounds, all the places we felt like we weren't loved. That's usually what's blocking us from having that moment. Mm-hmm. And then when we release those emotions or become aware of those emotions, start having a conversation with those emotions, then it deepens. And so then we get to a place with that person where we're like, something real is happening here. And you're touching a place in me that hasn't been recognized for a while. But then after we start peeling back these layers and where Elisa and my work really takes a radical different direction than most couples work is we start to recognize the divine nature within each other. Hmm. So we really believe when you start connecting to a soul and another person, and you're really connecting to that eternal part of them, you start to open up to all the mysteries of the universe. You really start to get more intuitive information about everything in your life because you get more in touch with ultimate reality. And I think even it's so hard down here as humans, there's so much stuff we're always dealing with, but holy love is an assumption of love in the universe, an assumption that's what's behind everything, even the horrific things on this planet is 
like Adam said in the beginning of the book, because he wrote that beginning was it's this is class. This is Love 101 University. So your your story with your dad earlier, it's like because I had a similar story with my dad in a different way. But it's like so that was hard when you were younger, maybe of like you're gone and I'm going to perform. But also on a soul level. So it's the, the soul contracts is you chose that experience with him. I was going to ask about that earlier for, <laughs> for the perfect yeah. like setup of what that was going to force you to learn consciously so that you could really embody that and bring that energy to the accumulation of your soul energy. So now, you know, love because you've lived through that mm-hmm. and experienced that. And he was your partner in that process. So then you start to have, even though that was tough and even though that didn't feel good, I rec- I honor you on a soul level for what the dance we were doing in this lifetime, how we played these roles for each other, me as daughter, you as father, but because those are also roles of like love, like reclaiming love, embodying love, where I was scared for him maybe of love and then just coming into that, you know? Um, So, and I'm definitely not trying to put words into your experience or or your thing, you know, or your dad's, but I think it's a perfect example of like what it all because we can get and we do and we should grieve the experience of our younger self but all our work is an assumption of how wise your soul was to kind of know through that experience there was going to be some kind of particular learning unique to you and I think especially in your situation where you're unique because of what you've done and what you've lived so just the uniqueness of that was how your soul was like you know how we're gonna learn this (laughs) we're going to learn it through this really interesting and public experience so that she knows it so well. Cause that's, that's kind of, um, we have one exercise called mystic Mad Libs, which I love, which is kind of like, if you think of something hard in your life and you assume you have to pretend maybe if it was done from love, what was I really becoming the expert master teacher of through that weird, unique experience? Sure. And, and when we, when we identify that, then we start to feel less like victimized by everything and more of like, Oh, I understand what I was learning there. Yeah. You can also and, hold the experience in more love, you know? So I think yeah. it's not saying, Oh, well, there was a lesson here. And so I wasn't, you know, don't deserve to feel my human emotions with it. Yeah. I think you can like also both. connect to yeah more love on that through that vantage point. Yeah. And to be, yeah. And to be, uh, if maybe there's someone that's con- uh, slightly confused, it's saying, you're saying that, um, and maybe, well, he, I'm going to re- reflect what I'm hearing you say, which is that we come in with agreements and soul contracts with people and we choose our situation. And, you know, I came in with this understanding and so did my dad, like, Hey, you know, this is what I'm going to go do. And he's like, I'll be that guy. Don't I'll do it. I'll do it. Like, I know where you're going and I got you. And, you know, he's like, I'll be willing to sacrifice this sort of, you know, the time with you or whatever it is that created the dynamic so that you can be thrust deeper into this reality that is going to help more people be, be more be more important overall and um, and also just show you yourself and help me on a soul level develop these certain aspects and areas because as we said at the very beginning that you know 
this is a continuum and it's not that this one life is the be all end all. And, and everybody has their opinion on that. But I do find it's almost like a little bit of a form of religion in a way. It's like this, this rings true to me and feels right. But it's also there's a sense of peace in that to know that like you've come into this life and, you know, you chose your challenges and you've got sort of a soul evolution to work on. And that just like the light spectrum is this big and we see right here, we're just right here right now. And yeah, we've exactly. come That's from here and we're going it, yeah. here. It's a big, big spectrum. And um, and I think about that. And I really think about, oh, sweet Dolores Cannon. Do you guys know? Yeah, of course. <laughs> Love Dolores. She's yeah. passed now, unfortunately. But she was, a, she was, I mean, I watch a lot of her talks. Um, actually, Instagram has that one thing on reels where it's like, um, uh, the Dolor- it's Dolores' voice. Nobody probably knows it's her, but it's like, you came into this world to learn how to manipulate energy. And once you learn how to manipulate energy, you can have anything you want. The universe, there's nothing you can't have once you learn how to do that. And I'm like, that's Dolores. And I was thinking about <laughs> Dolores, um, this beautiful, wonderful 80-some-year-old woman that uh, I watch her, watch her, her, her lectures of, um, talk about the fact that, you know, as this continuum exists, I don't want to have to come back in the next life to learn this lesson. Seriously. So like it invites me, it, 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 there's a sense of peace there because it invites me to face the thing because either that, or I'm going to have to get to 39 years old again, next time around to go, here you are, Danica, you're going to figure it out this time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think all of that comes from really the decision. If we believe that this is a meaningful or meaningless universe. And so, and if we think that it's meaningful, if we think that there's purpose behind our actions and what's happening, then we can't really pick and choose what's (laughs) purposeful and what's not purposeful. Like, oh, it was so purposeful when I got this (laughs) book deal, but it was so meaningless (laughs) when my my, marriage fell apart. Yeah. When my kid was upset or something like that. And when you take that even into just relationship conflict, the next time you're within an argument with your partner, if you just ask that question, if this is on purpose, what could it be meaning? What mm-hmm. might we be yeah. learning right now? Yeah. yeah. And that's that just wonderful. that changes things. It's really just, a, it comes down to an assumption mm-hmm. of love of like, yeah, are we, is this all random and haphazard or can we feel into that orchestration that maybe this is happening for a reason? And if so, why whether our ego likes that answer or not yeah Yeah. thank you that was well said a meaningful or a meaningless uh universe and to close with more words from you the 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 this the sentence we can't live as soulmates if we don't know ourselves as souls and i think that's a, a good way to close and i think that that point is really beautiful adam and elisa thank you so much for um bearing your soul for doing the work and being able to share it with others and inviting people to mm -hmm, meet themselves at the level that I think the universe has always been hoping we do. Well, thank you for everything. We love you you so much and we love your soul. And I don't know if you've seen this, but you're on the top of our book. Your your endorsement's right (laughs) there on the top cover. So yeah, I'll be sending this to you in the mail. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I have the PDF. (laughs) Um, Congratulations. A labor of love. But um, 
I always find that the the harder 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 something is, the more meaningful it is. And um, as far as uh, when it's calling and it's in alignment, it's um, that attrition leads to really beautiful things. And so, thank you guys. Yeah. Thank you so thank much. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's a pleasure. Thanks everybody for listening to the Pretty Intense podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you heard today and you want to hear more, please click on the subscribe button.